Guys, when people ask me why I do what I do, believe it or not, they do ask a lot. I was actually at a wedding a few weeks ago. First question the guy asked me, sitting at the table next to me is, well, what made you become a pastor? The answer is what you just saw in that video. I'm a pastor, I've given my life to this calling because I believe Jesus is exactly who he said he is, the way, the truth, the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. And there is nothing, nothing more hopeful or more powerful or more beautiful than being part of people, getting reconciled to and coming home to their Father in heaven. I love it. But here's the deal now. Jesus' final commission to those of us who would come behind was, well, it was twofold. Surrounded by his disciples after his resurrection, Jesus looked around and he said to the boys, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a bold claim. Then he said to them, therefore, because of that, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You just saw that and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The marching orders, did you hear that now? Were not just to make baptizees, but to make disciples. That term, it, it means to make progressive learners or students of Jesus and his ways and his teachings. Well, how do you do that? Well, I'll tell you this, you don't stop at a decision for or a decision about Jesus. Because the orders there from Jesus, they were not just about baptisms. Because baptisms, in many ways, well, they're like births. I mean, imagine a parent just giving birth to a child and then walking away. All right, kid, you got it now. Clean yourself up. There's a bottle in the fridge. You take it from here. No parent would do that. I mean, heck, even the worst parents wouldn't do that. And why? because they know that this new creation of theirs, if left alone, this newborn is not going to make it. I mean, oh, sure, there are certain social structures in place to make sure that a baby would get its physical needs met. But a parent's job is not just providing for the physical needs. Parents are supposed to, well, raise up, train up a child in the way it should go to, to teach them, again, to train them, so, so that when other people come along, people maybe with bad intentions or bad motives, that they don't get hurt, that they don't get misled, that they're not taken advantage of. Guys, this too is also the job of the church with new believers. And yet, here's what we know. For all of time, the church has never been as good at making disciples as it has at making baptizees, making babies. The Apostle Paul the man who himself never met Jesus face to face, but he was very learned in his ways. He was, for all intent, a disciple of disciples. Paul had this same fear for the churches he was planting. Here's what he wrote to the church he began in the city of Ephesus about why God had given the church pastors and teachers. So that, he said, the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Guys, Paul was worried because he knows like we know what happens when Christians don't grow. Just like a newborn left alone, there is a danger there. 
He says, look, we need to become mature, and here's why. Because then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Bang. Mic drop moment, if you will. People getting deceived, being lied to, being led astray by false teaching. It was happening then, only years after Jesus' resurrection. And it's been happening ever since. In fact, over these last couple of years, I feel like it's been happening to believers at, at levels I haven't seen in my lifetime. Fueled by social media and social disintegration, it seems to me, at least anecdotally, that followers of Jesus are being lied to and led astray, often for partisan and political purposes, at record levels. And again, this is not a left or right thing. I want you to see every side is up to this, using people of faith to further personal or political causes, but not Jesus' cause. This issue, it was Jesus' concern, it was Paul's fear, and it's not just my observation. I believe this is happening today for the same reason it always has. It's, well, we say we believe, right? We do believe. We proclaim we believe. We, we try to live like we believe, but the problem is we don't actually know what it is that we say we believe. We believe in Jesus, and, and after that, for many of us, it gets a little fuzzy. Lifeway Research recently published data on this very topic in a study called The State of Theology, What is Our Spiritual Temperature? There is a lot of information, and it's put together so well online. I encourage you to check it out. Here are some takeaways, though. First, the survey revealed significant confusion regarding the doctrine of God, who he is. In fact, the survey revealed significant numbers affirming heresies, things like denying that the Holy Spirit was a person, denying that Jesus was God. The survey revealed heretical views regarding human nature and sin. It revealed that less than half of Americans think the Bible is the word of God and that it's true, less than half. These same numbers of population also reject what the Bible has to say on ethical issues, things like sex outside of the bounds of marriage. The survey, it revealed that six out of 10 believe in a literal heaven, but less than half polled think you need to believe in Jesus to get there. This survey also revealed that while six in 10 believe in a literal hell, two thirds of people uh, uh, believe that we're by nature good. In other words, we believe in hell, it's just that there won't be very many people there. The most concerning thing this study showed, the most convicting thing for me as a pastor, was that there was, unfortunately, very little discernible difference in these things that were being professed by believers and those who were not. Now, just as interesting to me was another survey that was done a couple of years ago. It was a couple of decades ago, actually, now in Great Britain. There was a sociologist there that conducted a massive study on the religious convictions of British people, specifically on their belief in God. And what the survey revealed is that even many who believe in a God 
Do not believe that he's personal. Do not believe that he intervenes in human history or has anything to do with the person and work of Jesus. One responder to the survey summarized this view of God quite succinctly. When asked, how would you describe the God in whom you believe, he said, oh, just an ordinary God. My friends, as we kick off this new church year together, we're beginning a new series, one with very, a very distinct goal. This is it. To get you to not just believe, but to know that the one true and only God, the God that many, if not most of us, profess to believe in, is not. He is anything but an ordinary God. His greatness is beyond measure. His goodness, guys, it knows no bounds. His love is beyond comprehension. And I have to tell you, knowing him and being known by him, it is the single greatest gift and pleasure a man can ever hope to have or experience. Please know he is no ordinary God. This new series is called Creed. Knowing what it is we say we know. It's called Creed because what we're going to be reviewing together and using as our study guide, well, it's it's the preeminent creed of the Christian faith. It's known as the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you grew up in a Catholic church or more of a liturgical church, you likely grew up reciting it. More recently here at Menham Hills, the creed has been on our regular rotation in our worship set. So if you've been part of our church, you've been singing it. But over these next weeks, Our goal isn't just to know it, but it's to own it. Theologian Albert Moeller, in his book, The Apostles' Creed, Discovering Authentic Christianity in an Age of Counterfeits, he writes regarding this creed. He goes, this is what Christians believe, what all Christians believe. The Apostles' Creed collapses time and space, uniting all true believers in the one holy and apostolic faith. Speaking of the creed, he said, it is the summary of what the Bible teaches, a narrative of God's redemptive love, and a concise statement of basic Christianity. All Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. Ancient Christians honored this creed. Martyrs recited this creed. The Protestant reformers continued the use of the Apostles' Creed in worship and the teaching of believers. There is such power in knowing that when we confess the Apostles' Creed alone or in corporate worship, we're declaring the truth of the Christian faith with the very words that gave early Christians hope, that sent martyrs confidently to their deaths, and the words that have instructed Christ's church throughout the centuries. Now, contrary to its title, the creed was actually not written by the apostles, though there have been tales towards that end. At one point, it was handed down that the disciples, after Jesus' ascension, each of them wrote down one thing they believed in, they put it together, and that was the apostles' creed. Cool story. Not true. Creed actually emerged sometime around the fourth or fifth century, and it was primarily used as a tool to do a bunch of things. To define truth, to correct error, to connect us to the faith of our fathers, to summarize our faith, and to define what it is that unifies us, Christian unity. All of these things, so critically important for each of us individually and for our faith corporately, so that we would grow up. 
I love how C.S. Lewis put it in regards to understanding these theological things. He goes, look, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It'll mean that you have a lot of wrong ones. And so with that in mind, as, and, and that is a backdrop, let me ask you to do what I'm going to ask you to do with me each week. If you're here at Mendham, we're going to do it together uh, in person. We're going to read and share the ancient creed aloud. So I, I encourage you to read it aloud at home with me. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Any questions yet? Well, I'm sure you have some, because there's some interesting things in there. And we're going to try to get to them all in the next few weeks. But let's jump in this morning with the opening, and maybe the most important two words in the whole thing. I believe. The word creed itself means just that. I believe. This is the Apostles' Creed. It's what the Apostles believed. But in this statement, and in our faith, I, the words I believe... They mean so, so much more. The Apostle Paul, the one who said earlier, we need to grow up to mature in our faith, he told the church in Rome in very simple terms the importance of, I mean, heck, it's beyond importance, the primacy and purpose of faith and belief. Here's what he said. He goes, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Paul says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, this is a declaration of lordship, and it was a radical one at, at that in the early centuries. Remember when Jesus is walking around Nazareth and Galilee, when Paul is writing to this church in Rome, it was posted everywhere, this concept of lordship. The empire in Rome, it posted their beliefs, kind of like we do. They posted it on their money, and so do we. we on our money, we have e pluribus unum, right? Out of one many, we're the United States. What we believe is on our money. The Roman Empire had tattooed on their money, Caesar is lord. And so when the early Christians were saying this, they were renouncing that. And Paul says you should declare it aloud, which would put them at no small amount of risk. This was not easy believism. This was not a petty confession. To say it out loud, you would have to really, really, really have meant it. You had to really believe it in your heart. That's why Paul in verse 10 said to them, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. 
And since the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. Paul says that believing is not just a a, a words issue. Oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. He says it's a heart issue first, primarily. But if I'm honest, at least in my opinion, the church throughout the centuries has made the mouth the primary issue. We ask people to recite the sinner's prayer, to accept Jesus as their Lord, and and those are good things. And we ask them to to speak those things. We, We start with the mouth, but we rarely ever get to the heart. Paul says, no, no, no. Faith, faith that saves, that justifies, it starts with believing, and believing starts in the heart. Why? Well, notice, guys, that the creed does not start with I know about God the Father Almighty. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty. There is a big difference between believing and knowing. See, I know George Washington was the first president of the United States. And I know about him. I I know about his birth and his accomplishments, his life, his death. But that knowledge has no impact on my heart. I don't live any differently because of that knowledge. The word believe that Paul uses there when he's talking to the church in Rome, the kind of belief which Paul says justifies us is not a mere mental accedence to a fact. The word he uses in the Greek is the word pisteo, and it means not just to believe, but to put my full trust in. I believe in George Washington. I don't put my trust in him. I believe in self-driving cars and the technology that guides them. I haven't put my butt in one yet. For those in Rome, there is no way with Caesar's Lord signs everywhere that you're going to confess with your lips publicly because you might get your head cut off for that. There's no way you're going to confess with your lips publicly unless you believe in your heart, unless you trust in God the Father Almighty. The reason the creed starts with these two powerful words is that it's these two powerful words which differentiate Christianity from every other religion, every other moral system that exists or has existed in the history of the earth. I mean, think about it. In every other religion, in every other moral system, their primary teaching is, here's the standard Here's how you achieve it. Here's how you measure up to it. Here's how you exceed it. Here's how you do enough. For, for faith systems, here's how you do enough to get to heaven. You, you stop doing these things or you start doing these things. More good deeds, less bad deeds. Ethical systems, here, here's how you get ahead in this world. Think about it, though. Christianity, our faith is different. What we confess is that it is by belief, by trusting our lives into the lordship and resurrection of Jesus, that we're justified. We stand before God justified. That's a a religious word. It has deep meaning there. But the easiest way to understand what it means is when you say justified in the scripture, when you read justified, what it's saying is just you stand before God just as if I had never sinned. I'm justified. I, I stand before God just as if I had never sinned. Why? Because I believe. 
We didn't do that. We are not justified by our works. The creed does not start with, I did, right, so I'm good, but I believe, so I'm justified. I'm justified by belief. My heart level trust. We don't believe or trust in what we've done. We believe and trust and rest in what God has done. I believe and I put my trust in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's so powerful. I believe in, I trust in that. Which means that I don't trust. I'm putting aside my trust in the things of this world. And that's a big statement. That means that I'm not going to trust in my education, my intellect, my job, my paycheck, my reputation, my looks, my achievements, my husband, my wife, my kids. I may trust them, but they come much lower on the list. I am all in on, on God, the Father Almighty. I have cast my whole future on God, the Father Almighty. I have pushed all my chips to the middle and I'm not hedging my bets. You can check my calendar. You can check my checkbook. You can look at my date book. Based on everything I am, I believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. The creed gets really specific about who it is we believe in. Did you catch that? Because into a world chock full of gods, the creed defines the one true God in a way that only Christians could. Because no one else then or now has ever believed in a God that could be defined this way. God, the Father Almighty. There are many gods that people have invented and come up with over the millennia of human existence. There is no God that has ever been dreamt of or imagined that is both God Almighty and yet Father. The creed, the creed says there's one God. Not many. There's not a sun God or a moon God or a fertility God. There's only one God. And this God, well, is in his own words, he introduced himself to Abraham this way. He said, uh, the, Lord, the, the scriptures say in Genesis, the Lord appeared to him and said to Abraham, I am God Almighty. In the Hebrew, El Shaddai, which scholars believe, while translated, it could have meant one of two things. When translated, it could have meant one of two things. The first is, I am God the Thunderer. I think about that one at home all the time. I had actually never heard that until my research this week. But I'm telling you, have you ever sat home and had a real thunderstorm go by? I mean, like a real one? The house is rattling. The lightning bolts are landing. You, you start to count how long it is between the lightning and the thunder. And as it gets closer and closer, you realize the storm is getting on top of you. Whenever I hear that and and I kind of shake internally at the power of the thunder. I think to myself, God, in his power and glory and grandeur, is so much greater than that. The second original meaning could have been this, God the overpowerer. There is no power that is greater. There is no power that can stand up against. There is no one, no man, no force which can thwart his will. When the creed said that God is almighty, 
It's affirming all of God's attributes, the fullness of his perfections. You know some of those things. We've talked about them. God is omnipotent. It means he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, with whomever he wants, or whatever he wants. God is omniscient, meaning that God is all-knowing. In that sense, God knows everything that has ever happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen. God is never surprised. His knowledge is total. He knows all that there is to know and all that can be known about everyone and everything through all of time, every day, including you. It's not just that. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times, in all of time, in all of creation. There is no location where God is not. I could go on, but I think you're starting to get the point. God is indeed the thunderer and the overpowerer. But I can't help but wonder if sometimes we, we forget that. Because friends, when it comes to God, the size of God really does matter. Some of you know that in a couple of weeks, my wife Joan and I and Janet Klazeski, our director of small groups, we're gonna start a small group together. And, and Joan and I love small groups. We love having people over our house. There's just one thing that's such, just such a pain when we do it. It's our dog, Molly. Molly's one of these foofy designer dogs. Well, she's not so foofy anymore because she's really super old. She's more matty than foofy. But her mixed breed is sometimes called a teddy bear dog because that's what in her youth she looked like. And she's small, almost like a stuffed animal, uh, kind of like a little stuffed animal sheepdog, I'd say. And when people, comes in, when people come over, Molly goes bananas. I mean, she barks and jumps. But I have to tell you to date, not one person has ever walked in and run out the door in fear of Molly. You know why? Because Molly is a pipsqueak. If she jumps on you, you barely feel it. If she were to persist, or persist in it, you could just push her away. Nobody's afraid of Molly. Now, my father, I go to his house on Sundays, most Sundays, to watch football or baseball games with my dad. I've been doing it forever. Now, my dad has a dog, too. His name is Axel, and Axel is no Molly. Axel is the biggest German shepherd you have ever seen. Every time I ring the bell at my dad's house, and I've been doing this for years, Axel strikes fear in the heart of this man. And I'm 6'2", 200 plus pounds. Why? Because that dog is big. If he jumps on me, he's gonna take me down. And if he wants to end me, and I have to tell you, most Sundays when I ring that bell, it sounds like he wants to, he will. If you know any UPS guys in Long Valley, trust me, and you can read the news articles, they know Axel, and they feel the same way. Axel has a bark of thunder. Axel has a bite that would overpower. He strikes fear in my heart. And Axel keeps many, if not most people, at a distance, which is what's so amazing about who God has revealed himself to be. Because he is not God Almighty. He is God the Father Almighty. This God, our God, the God reveals himself. He wants us to know him in the most intimate possible ways. It was Jesus who, when he was teaching us how to pray, said when you approach God, you approach him this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that word father there in the Greek. It's the diminutive form of father, meaning that Jesus was not being formal with God Almighty, but it was more like saying, when you come to him, come saying, Papa or Daddy. Our God, this God is so powerful. God the thunderer, but unlike all other gods that man has ever invented, this God is personal. He's powerful and he's personal. He's intimate and loving, dare I say, doting in his fatherly love of his children. You know, when Jesus was explaining to his disciples how to approach God as Papa, he did so. He described it in opposition to another way that we could approach him, that many do. Right before the prayer started, here's what Jesus said. He goes, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus is saying there are two ways to approach this God. You can approach him by like the pagans, it's the word that got translated there, or you can approach him like dad. The difference in how you approach him has everything to do with who you think he is and who you think you are. That word Jesus is using there that's translated pagans, it means somebody outside of the family of God, somebody who, who does not know intimately God. And he says, of course, that those people pray. Of course they pray. But when they pray because they're not part of the family of God, because they don't know him, they think they have to approach God with lots of words. He says, you don't need to come that way because you have a relationship with your dad. He knows already what you need. I mean, think about it, right? To date, none of my kids have ever had to remind me that they need food or clothes. Now, they may remind me of the food or clothes they want, but they don't have to remind me that they need it. Why? Because they trust their dad. They believe in their dad. They, they know that I know. Jesus says the pagans, they think they're going to be heard of because, because of something they're doing for a reason. There are many words. He says, you come knowing you're going to be heard because you're his son or his daughter. It's actually an underlying question here, which the creed is answering. The question is, why do you think when you come to God that he would hear you? If you believe that God is just God Almighty, then you might think he would hear you based on something you're doing or have done. But Jesus says, and the creed affirms, he hears you because you're his. He's your dad. See, Jesus is saying, the creed is affirming his relation to, to us, his relationship, it is not transactional, but it is familial. In a transactional relationship, the basis of that relationship is performance, right? I do what you demand of me, and I do it because you, in turn, do what I demand of you. But in a familial relationship, within a family, it's, it's very different. That relationship is, is permanent. It's committed. Tim Keller does a great job of explaining these two kinds of relationships. He equates it to the way, two kinds of ways that you can live in somebody's home. You could live as a boarder, as somebody who pays rent, or you could live as a family member. See, if you live in somebody's home as a boarder, then the person whose house it is, well, they're your landlord. 
And your relationship with them, it could be nice, but at the end, it's governed by the rules of the lease. Pay the rent, respect the property, and then the landlord will leave you alone. Things will go well for you, right? It's transactional, it's conditional. But a family relationship would be different. It's not governed by rules, which make it conditional. It's based not on what you do, but who you are. My daughter Caroline, right, my baby, she doesn't live in my home because she keeps it well and pays the rent on time, trust me. She lives in my home because of who she is. She's my little girl. You know what happens when we relate to God as somebody, well, who's not family like the pagans? Look at it this way. When, when your prayers aren't answered, when you live as a border, what, what do you do? You tend to go in two directions with the landlord. One might be anger. I paid the rent. I cleaned the bathroom. And you're not keeping your end of the bargain. And I'm really ticked. Or you could spend your days living your life out in fear, knowing that you're late on the rent again and the bathroom's dirty. And, and so now you're just waiting for the eviction notice and you're doing everything you can do to make sure that you avoid the landlord at all costs. See, when we live that way with God, we live with just believing in God Almighty. When we live that way with God, when it's transactional and not familial, the relationship can become cold. We can live our lives very anxious. But if you see Almighty God as God the Father too, well, then when your prayers aren't answered, you're, you're neither angry or cold because you know him and that, that he wants what's best for you. And, and so you wait on him and you rest in him and whatever it is that he's giving. And if God is God the Father Almighty, do you know what that makes you? John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, learners. Well, this is what he learned he said, to all who did receive him, to those who believed, there it is again, who trusted in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The scriptures describe all over, the creed affirms that you and I are adopted children of almighty God. This is the essence of faith. It's the essence of Christianity. It's what makes it different than every other religion. I have some friends in our church that have adopted a couple of children from overseas. Do you know that neither of those two children did anything to be adopted? They didn't look a certain way. They didn't perform a certain way. They didn't send letters over here explaining all of their good characteristics and how they're uh, deserving of adoption. In fact... Their will had nothing to do with them being adopted. They were adopted by the choice of my, of my friends, by their parents. Their parents made the choice to adopt them. It was not the other way around. Understand this, friends. Our adoption is an act of love by God, the Father Almighty. He adopted us. We are under no form of lease with him. We are here with him forever, whether we perform for him or not, because we are his sons and daughters. In fact, adoption means that the father sees us, the father loves us. 
we are legally the same as his very own children. He sees us and loves us as much as his own son. God loves you just like that in the same way, to the same depth that he loves his very own son. Paul explained it, this unbelievable concept to the church in Rome this way. He said, the spirit, the spirit you received when you believed, it brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, here it is, Abba, Papa, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, Paul comes to the same conclusion. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. Co-heirs with Jesus. All that is Christ, we share in. Paul actually said we share in the glory of Christ because we are children of God. Our Father, who is God Almighty. It's unbelievable. Last thought, and I don't have the time to fully explore it at all this morning, but it's this. The creed affirms that God the Father Almighty, whom we've put our trust in, is maker of heaven and earth. Quite simply, and I'm going to leave it at this, God is the designer, the author, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And that includes you. And since that is true, this is what it means. You are not the product of spatial goo collected over millennia that just happened at a quadrillion to one shot to come together in such a fashion as to comprise you. You might have been taught that. That is a lie. We do not believe that. God the almighty God, your dad, made you. And the scriptures say he made you in his image. You are in some ways, though imperfect, imperfectly so, you are in some ways a chip off the old block. He breathed his breath of life into you, and he created you with dignity and for purpose Friends, your circumstances, the time and place in which you were born and now live, they are not random. They were ordained by God. You have meaning. You have significance. You are loved and desired by Almighty God. He created you to do His will, to reflect His image, to enjoy His, his friendship and to partner with him in the reestablishment of his kingdom and his ways and his loves and his teachings in every place you go and with everyone you interact. That is who you are. This is crazy. But you are deserving of glory and honor and love, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he's done on your behalf. You are a child of Almighty God. That's it for today, friends. But do you see, do you sense how dangerous it would be to live without fully, truly understanding this? Because there's one thing that you need to know. This God, our God, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is no 
ordinary God.